0: If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, Matthew 5, verse 4. As Pastor JJ mentioned just a few moments ago, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, verse 4 Um, this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can just pull up Google and type in uh, Matthew 5, colon 4. um, Or you can go in the back. There are some white and blue paperback Bibles in the back there. We'd love for you to uh, grab one of those. And, and if you don't have a Bible, to take one of those home uh, and read it. We'd love for you to take that home and make it your own. Um, <clears throat> that's our gift to you. Uh, you also received a bulletin with an, a Connect card inserted in it uh, when you walked in this morning. Uh, that is a good way for us to get to know you, get to know a little bit about you. And uh, that's the sort of first step uh, for for us uh, getting connected with you. We'd love to get together, grab a cup of coffee. One of us, one of the elders, uh, myself, uh, we, we'd love to to get to know you a little bit. Um, there's also a space for prayer requests on there. We'd love to be able to pray for you this week. If you would jot a few things down there and, and turn it into one of the leaders you see up here and the wooden boxes, those beautiful wooden boxes on the uh, on the tables out here, they are just gorgeous. Um, you can drop one of those in there. Um, and, uh, and, and we'd love to be in prayer for you this week and, and get connected with you sometime this week. Um, well, we're going to look at Matthew 5, verse 4, as we said. Let's take a moment and, and pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, this is, um, this is a weighty text, and it's been a weighty week. And all of us, all of us, every single one of us um, are going to in some way identify with, with what we see here in this text. All of us know what it is to mourn, to face life's difficulties and disappointments, and to just feel helpless. And So we pray that you'd be what you say you are in this text, that you would be our comforter this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, we are currently exploring in our time together on Sunday mornings. We're considering the beatitude statements from Jesus. And, um, and we've noted that, that the Beatitudes are often misunderstood statements. Uh, they're often understood as blessings. Uh, they're not blessings. Uh, sometimes they're understood as commandments. They're not commands. Um, Rather, they are, Beatitudes are congratulatory descriptions of the good life that also invite us into the good life. They are congratulatory descriptions of the good life that invite us into the good life. Uh, we've seen, um, uh, we've seen that, that each Beatitude statement begins with uh, a very important and fascinating word, the word Makarios. Uh, makarios. makarios is a, a Greek word that means happy, it means flourishing. Uh, It's a word that means, you know, what we mean by hashtag blessed, you know. Um, And and what Jesus is doing here when he uses this word and makes these statements is he's providing congratulatory descriptions of people in a state of well-being that invites us into their way of life. He's saying if you want to know what the good life, the happy life, the flourishing life, the abundant life looks like, here it is come and live into this vision, this authoritative vision for human flourishing. They paint a picture for us of what the good life, the happy life is, and they beckon us to join the ranks of the flourishing. Here's how Jonathan Pennington describes Beatitudes. He says that they are an inspirational vision for the wise way of being in the world that will result in what all humans desire, human flourishing. It is, uh, Beatitude is a poetically crafted form of implicit invitation to consider what the best way of being in the world is and to pursue it. In other words, the Beatitudes are Jesus's authoritative vision for human flourishing and his invitation for us to live according to it. Now, it should come as no surprise to any of us that what all human beings want deep down is to find true and lasting and real happiness. Now, of course, by by, by happiness, again, I I don't mean temporary and fleeting feelings of pleasure. Uh, By happiness, we mean human flourishing. We mean living a life of meaning and purpose and depth and goodness and beauty. Uh, That is the kind of happiness that we, each and every single one of us, desire and long for deep down in the bottom of our souls. Now, Blaise Pascal once communicated this very idea. He, he once wrote, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others of avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will, our wills, the will never takes the least step but to this object. And He's right. We do everything that we do as human beings... We do because we want to flourish. We want to be happy. It's the goal of every religion and philosophy. It's the goal of every TV commercial and social media and at and 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 uh an ad campaign. It's the goal of of every single one of our vocational pursuits, every sexual encounter, every meal we eat. It's, It's what progressives and conservatives long for. It's what the religious and the irreligious long for. Everything we do, we do because we want to be happy. We want to flourish as human beings. The question isn't whether we want to be happy and flourish as human beings. The question is, how do we get there? How do we get there? And according to Jesus, in the Beatitudes that we're exploring this morning it's, it's to be heartbroken. It's to be heartbroken. It's to mourn. It's to grieve. Makarios are those who mourn. Happy are the heartbroken. Blessed are the bewailing. Jesus is saying that you will never know what it means to be happy and to flourish until you learn to mourn and lament what is grievous in this world and in your life. And I know that that seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? It seems counterintuitive to us, at at least. That We we don't want to feel sad. We don't want to mourn. We don't want to lament. But consider the alternative to accepting this invitation to mourn over the world's brokenness and over our own brokenness. Rather, we could run from facing the world's pain and brokenness. And in, fact, in fact, you could make the case that modern life, modern Western life, has actually been formed and crafted and shaped in such a way so that we don't have to face it. You know, as, as Westerners, we have more distractions and escape mechanisms than anyone ever in the history of the world. Like, more than anyone in the history of the world. We, we binge Netflix... We bury ourselves in our smartphones. We scroll through social media for hours. We spend way too much money on food and drink. We, we run from relationship to relationship. We numb ourselves with substances. We work way too many hours, and on and on we could go. We distract ourselves and numb ourselves and give ourselves to unhealthy coping mechanisms but you know and I know that these practices that we habitually give ourselves to are not forming us to be flourishing human beings. They're forming us to be fragile human beings. It doesn't lead to a soul being happy and satisfied. It leads to a soul being brittle and frail. And, and so look, the, the kind of happiness that Jesus is talking about here is not, the, it's not a kind of like plastic facade it's not a like veneer kind of happiness. It's not good vibes. He's not saying bury your head in the sand and pretend the world is hunky-dory. He's not telling us to live according to some dream world escapist fantasy wherein all is well. He's telling us that the good life is to wake up to the reality to, of, of how things ought to be, how they are, and, and, and to mourn and grieve over the disparity between the two. Because in the midst of mourning and on the other side of mourning, there is comfort. There's comfort. There's comfort for those who mourn. And so let's read Matthew 5, 3 through 10. We're going to look particularly at verse 4 this morning. Listen to God's word. These are the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now again, we're looking particularly at verse 4 this morning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As one translation puts it, the Young's literal translation, I love this, happy the mourning, because they shall be comforted. Now Jonathan Pennington's translation says, flourishing are the mourners, because they will be comforted. Jesus is saying that his mourning and grieving disciples are happy, are flourishing, because their comfort has come and is coming. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's see why we mourn what we mourn and what comforts us. Why we mourn what we mourn and what comforts us. First, why we mourn. Why do we mourn? Well, as we discussed briefly last week, the, the beatitudes are are describing Jesus' disciples. Okay. This is the beatitudes collectively, all together, describe disciples of Jesus, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The beatitudes collectively describe disciples of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus are poor in spirit. Disciples of Jesus uh, are meek. They they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They they are pure in heart. They are peacemakers. Uh, they are merciful. They are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And here in the Beatitude that we're looking at this morning, disciples of Jesus are those who mourn. They're those who mourn. Now, I know that that, that might be somewhat surprising for you. Uh, like when some of you think of the sort of typical, ordinary, Christian, you don't think of someone who mourns, who weeps, who grieves, but maybe of someone who's cheerful, you know, someone, someone who always has a smiling face, uh, someone who, if you ask them how, they do, how they're doing, they give you a big slap on the back and a big grin and say, better than I deserve, brother, better than I deserve. That's that maybe what you picture uh, a, a, um, a Christian looking like and, and being like. You know, it makes me think of that movie, with Tom Hanks, a league of their own. Um, uh, it's about a, a women's baseball team, and Tom Hanks is, plays their, their coach. And, and in one scene, he yells at one of the ladies, and, and she starts crying. And, and uh, he sees her crying and he goes, Are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying in baseball. Well, you might approach the Christian life the same way. There's no crying in Christianity, there's no crying in church. Some of us might treat Christianity that way, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that his disciples are those who mourn. And if you think about it for a moment, it makes all the sense in the world because of all people, Christians are those who are most acutely aware of the fact that this world is not as it should be. Like we know better than anyone that this world is broken. That things aren't right, that this world is not as God created it to be, that we are not as we were created to be, not yet. We know that this world does not always reflect God's character and kingdom, the way that it should, the way that it was created to. Like Christianity, you know, Christianity is not, as Karl Marx said, the, the opiate of the masses. It's the smelling salts. It, it wakes you up to how messed up this world really is and how messed up we really are, and it causes us to grieve deeply within our hearts. I mean, we prayed for, for Kevin Galloway, his family. We prayed for his church a few moments ago. You know, I received word of his death on, on Friday afternoon. I was out at lunch, and I just went home and I complained to the Lord, and I was able to say, God, this is not how it should be. This is not right. It's not right that his wife should have to bury her husband and that his children should have to go on without their father, and that his, their church is mourning the death of their pastor. It's not right. It shouldn't be this way. As Christians, we know that. It's not right. It's not how it should be. Or, or what just took place downtown just, just yesterday. There's a KKK rally in Courthouse Square and all across our city, you know, we just felt it. There was like a canopy of darkness just hovered over our city. Not, not actually, it was a beautiful sunny day, but, but I mean, there was a heaviness that laid on our hearts because of this. that, That racism and prejudice would prevail in and corrupt this world and our city. It's just not right. It's not right. It's not right. It's satanic. It's wrong. It's broken. It's sinful. It's not right. And as Christians, we know that this is not how it is supposed to be. We know that this is not the way that God created the world to be. And we're longing for him to make it right again. The reason we lament, why we lament, is because we're living according to the reality that God created the world to be a certain way, and he has redeemed it and is redeeming it to be a certain way, and we long for it in our hearts, but it's just not there yet. There's still sin. There's still spiritual bondage. There's still hatred. There's still division. There's still suffering. There's still death. There shouldn't be, but there is, and it's heartbreaking. Now, now, some of you in the room, you're, you're not Christians, and, and we're so happy that you're here, really. I mean, we, we hope you feel welcome at Veritas, and that you're able to process and ask questions and all of that. Now, I want to press in a bit here. Does it, does it bother you when we see things like we saw yesterday in downtown? Does it, does it the presence of racism and hatred and division like does that bother you? Of course it does. Why is that though? You know, because if there's no god and if we're here by some huge cosmic accident that's come about from the cosmic soup of the universe then there's no there's no really not not any intellectually honest way for you to critique what we saw yesterday. You can't actually say this is not the way it's supposed to be. Racism is not the way it's supposed to be. Violence is not the way it's supposed to be. You you can't actually say that because there's no God who created the world to be a certain way. And so there's no objective standard by which we judge what the world is supposed to be like. For all we know, it is actually the way the world is supposed to be. But you know, deep down, There is indeed something deeply wrong with the world. You know that things are not as they should be, and the reason you know that and that you desire for things to change is because you're actually longing for what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. You're longing for what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. That's the story written on your heart. You long for perfection and peace and wholeness and shalom because that's actually what you were made for. You were made for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God coming to set the world right. It's God coming to make things as they should be, the way that he created them to be. And that's why Christians, that's why we are a mournful people. That's why we grieve and mourn and weep because God created the world to be a certain way. He's redeemed it and is redeeming it to be a certain way, but it's not there yet. And we long for it in our hearts. It's not there. And so we mourn. We mourn because we know the world is not as it should be, not yet. But then specifically, what do we mourn? What causes us to mourn? Of course, the world not being as it should be is what we mourn, but let's get specific. First, we as Christians, we mourn over our sin, as followers of Jesus, we mourn over our sin. This, of course, you know, this follows naturally from the previous beatitude about the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who have come to recognize and mourn their own spiritual and moral bankruptcy. You know, we, we need to get this first. Before we ever mourn the sin and brokenness of this world, we need to recognize and mourn and acknowledge and bewail our own sin, lest we be Pharisees that condemn but are condemned ourselves. We need to recognize that brokenness is not just sin. It's not just something out there. It's something in here. It's in this room. It's in our hearts. No, we ought to cry out like Isaiah cried out when, when he was confronted with his own spiritual poverty before God. He, he didn't, when he met God, when he saw God, when he came into God's presence, he didn't cry out, this world is so messed up, I can't believe it. No, he says, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We see this in, in Jeremiah as well, in, in Lamentations one twenty, Jeremiah, he says, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. He says, my stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. His stomach churned, his heart was wrung because he had sinned. Because he saw the glory of God. And he saw his own sin and that his sin was an assault on the glory of God. And that it contributed to the brokenness of this world. And he mourned it. When we come to grips with the, with the weight of our sin, the glory of God, we ought to be undone. We have to mourn and grieve and lament. We ought to be undone by that. We have to mourn over our own brokenness and wretchedness before God. Christians mourn their sin. However, we we don't just grieve and mourn over our own sin and spiritual bankruptcy. We also mourn over our own suffering. Something that's all too painfully true about each and every single one of us is that we're not only perpetrators of sin, we're also victims of sin, we're victims of this world's brokenness. Something simultaneously true about each and every single one of us. We're not only, we are not only sin, but we're those who are sinned against. We've not only inflicted wounds upon others, but we've received wounds. We've been wounded, really, not just because of the sin of others, but just because of the, the presence of sin and brokenness in this world. The presence of, of death and sickness and natural disasters and all sorts of suffering. We've, we've lost loved ones. We've experienced divorce. We're experiencing failing and broken bodies. You're watching the aging of your parents, and there's more. You, you know that there is deep and tremendous suffering in your life. You know, if, if, if we were to take a show of hands this morning... Of everyone whose lives are not turning out quite the way that they wanted, I'm sure that every single hand in the room would be up. Every single one of us knows what it's like to face deep disappointments in life. But in the midst of our suffering and woundedness, in the midst of our own disappointment, we're invited not to pretend all is well. We're invited not to keep calm and carry on, Not to gloss over it with religious platitudes. Not to slap a smiling face on and and pretend it's all okay. Not to distract ourselves with escape mechanisms. We're invited to face what ails us and to take our tears to God. Now, interestingly, over one-third of the book of Psalms are Psalms of lament. It's over one-third, close to half of the Psalms, are psalms wherein the psalmist laments and mourns and grieves in poetry and prayer. And a few of those psalms are psalms of confession where they confess and mourn over their own sin. But the vast majority of them are psalms wherein they lament others sinning against them, where they lament things uh, in their life, profound loss in their lives, and they, they, they contain words that express longing to God for God to make things right and for his justice to prevail and for the world to, to reflect his nature and kingdom. Like, that is God's word. Like, what, that is God's word. And, and, and what's more, they are the Psalms, which is God's word that he puts in our mouths to pray and sing back to him. So what does that tell you about what God is inviting you to do with your pain and suffering and woundedness? He's inviting you to face it and to mourn over it and to bring it to him in prayer. He's inviting us to do just that. Maybe, though, you actually say, right now life is pretty easy and and comfortable for me. Okay, okay. That might be true for for some of us. It won't always be. Sickness is coming. The death of loved ones is coming. Betrayal is coming. Suffering is coming. Not to be the bearer of bad news, but it's coming. Suffering in some way, shape, or form is coming to your life. But still, we, we not only mourn our own sin and suffering, we also mourn with and for one another. We mourn with our brothers and sisters who are facing suffering and hardship. You know, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 15, he says that we ought to weep with those who weep. And we see our brothers and sisters going through suffering, being affected by the brokenness of this world. We we don't withdraw and hold them at an arm's distance. We draw near, we move toward them in love. We come alongside them and we weep with them. We live in accordance with the reality that in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, we are one. We are in union and communion with one another in Christ. We are family. The Apostle Paul speaks about the church in 1 Corinthians 12 as a a body with a single central nervous system. You know, when one of us feels pain and heartbreak, so do the rest of us. And so we, we weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. You know, full disclosure, I didn't actually know Kevin Galloway. I mean, besides the the awkward hello at, at Soldier Network events, I didn't actually know him. But because we share in this mystical communion of saints, I know his wife is hurting. I know his children are hurting. I know his church is hurting. I know a lot of pastors in the Soldier Network are hurting. And so I mourn. I am deeply affected by that because... We are one in Christ. We mourn with those who mourn. We weep with those who weep. And Not only do we weep over our own sin and suffering, not only do we mourn with one another, but we mourn and weep and grieve over the brokenness of this world. This world is not as it should be. It grieves us as God's people. And we see this demonstrated throughout Scripture. Look at Psalm 119, 136. It'll be on the screen. David says, My eyes pour out streams of tears because people do not follow your instruction. Jeremiah 9-1, we see this, the prophet Jeremiah again. He says, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain daughter of my people. I can't cry enough over this world's brokenness, over the brokenness of my people. We see this in a number of other places in the Old Testament as well, but but we see this demonstrated in life, in ministry of Jesus most clearly. In John eleven, Jesus is at Lazarus's funeral. And people were mourning and lamenting Lazarus' death. And although Jesus, he was actually about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but, but he still wept. He, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. He wept because he looked at those around him. And he saw the brokenness and pain and weeping of his friends and the weeping of those without hope. And he was broken over it. The same could be said of Matthew 23, 37. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus weeps and mourns and laments over the sin and brokenness of his people. He says, "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And friends, likewise, we have to be heartbroken over the brokenness of this world. When we look at the evils of racism present in our very own city just yesterday, we ought to be deeply grieved by that. When we see the sexual brokenness of our culture made evident through Me Too and celebrities and men of power abusing and harassing with impunity, we ought to grieve. When we see precious unborn children, precious image bearers killed in the womb, we ought to grieve. When we see our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka on Easter morning, their churches being bombed and, and, and hundreds of them being killed. When we see our brothers and sisters throughout the world gathering to worship in secrecy for fear of their heads being lopped off, we ought to grieve. Grieve. When we see gun violence in our very own city, when we see the prominence of addiction, when we see the disparity of the wealthy and the impoverished, when we see child abuse and sexual harassment and human trafficking, we have to be broken and undone over this world's brokenness. And we ought to be broken and undone about the root cause of all of that brokenness. And that is people, is the fact that people, it comes from the fact that people are separated from their creator and rightful king. Like here's the reality We're going to talk about our future and final comfort, which is coming at the return of Jesus here in a few moments. But but there are many in this world, in our city, in our neighborhoods, in our families that will not receive that final comfort. They've rejected God. They've rejected Christ. And because of this, they are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. Like this world, as broken and horrendous and awful as it is, is the best it's going to get for them. And so our eyes should be as flowing streams and as fountains of tears. We ought to weep and mourn and grieve over the rejection of their creator and rightful king. So we mourn. We mourn over our own sin. We mourn over our own suffering. We mourn with our brothers and sisters. And we mourn over the brokenness of this world. We mourn, but we don't mourn as the world mourns. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, we we don't mourn, the world mourns. We don't mourn as those who have no hope. We mourn as those who have hope. We mourn as those who are and will be comforted. Which brings us to the last point, what comforts us. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does Jesus mean when he says that they will be comforted, that we will be comforted? He's talking about the comfort that comes in the kingdom of God. And look at Matthew 5.3, and then at Matthew 5.10, and notice that the Beatitudes are bookended with the phrase, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And by bookending the Beatitudes in this way, Jesus, he's employing a, a Hebrew poetic device to communicate that every single one of those statements between verses 3 and 10 are benefits that belong to those who possess the kingdom of God. Inheriting the earth, being satisfied, receiving mercy, seeing God, being called sons of God are all things that belong to those who possess the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that the coming kingdom is what comforts us. The fact that God has come to us in Christ Jesus to set the world straight comforts us. The fact that Christ has come to make this world as it should be, as he created it to be, is what comforts us. Of course, last week we, we discussed there's the already and not yet fulfillments of the kingdom of God. We have yet to see the full manifestation of the kingdom of heaven here on earth, but still, even in the midst of our mourning now, We experience something of the happiness and flourishing and comfort which we will experience fully then. And we not only await the kingdom of God as something to come down from heaven, although we do wait for that, but we also experience the kingdom of heaven now because we've been fully reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We know God and we enjoy communion with God and we enjoy the presence of God because Christ has reconciled us to God. And you know, let me tell you, That's actually the best part about the kingdom of God. Like I know there are a lot of things that bring us comfort when we think about the kingdom of God. There's guilt drowned in the blood of Christ. We're born again and filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. We enjoy real and deep community and relationships with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We look forward to the return of Christ, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting on our inherited glorified earth. No more suffering, no more death, no more pain anymore. And those are wonderful gifts that come comfort us and that we look forward to and wonderful benefits that we receive in the kingdom of God. They're glorious things. But the best part about the kingdom of God is God. The best part, the most comforting gift that we receive in the kingdom of God is knowing and having communion with God. And even now, We experience communion with him, and we enjoy his presence. But here's something that all of those who truly mourn understand. There's a deeper communion and a deeper sense of his nearness that we experience and enjoy when we're grieving. It's paradoxical, and I can't fully explain it, but when we're mourning, we're lamenting. God is there in a special way. Psalm 34, 18 puts it best. He just says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. It's paradoxical, but it's true. The waters of his presence are most refreshing when we're in the desert. His light is most clear when we're in the darkness. His goodness is the sweetest when we're experiencing the bad. His beauty is most enjoyed when we're broken. There's real happiness and comfort that we get to enjoy in the midst of mourning that we don't experience otherwise. But then not only that, you know, there's also comfort that we experience on the other side of mourning. That is to say that there's There's an unimaginably and abounding comfort coming to those who mourn and long for the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus is coming back to set the world straight. Jesus is coming back to transform and renew the entirety of his creation, and that will be a time when God's nearness and presence won't just be enjoyed in the midst of mourning and hardship, but when his presence will utterly banish all mourning and hardship from the world entirely. The waters of his presence won't just be enjoyed by us in the desert, the waters of his presence will cover the desert and overtake the desert. His light will banish all darkness. His beauty will undo our brokenness and this world's brokenness. He will remake this world into what it should be. As Tim Keller once said, everything sad will become untrue and somehow it will be better for having been broken in the first place. In Revelation one four. Describes the scene. It says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There will be no more car accidents or KKK rallies. There will be no more sin and spiritual bondage. There will be no more sexual abuse and harassment, no more abortion, no more war, no more loneliness, no more broken bodies, no more brokenness at all because all former things will have passed away. And the reason we know that day will most certainly come is because Jesus already came. And although he existed in the perfection and pleasures of heaven for eternity past, he didn't stay there when we languished and mourned in our brokenness. Rather, he stepped in. He came, as Isaiah 53, 3 calls him, as the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He came and he was betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends. He came and he was slandered and persecuted by this world. He came and was subjected to material poverty. And not only that, but he didn't just come as a man of sorrows. He died as a man of sorrows. Betrayed and abandoned by his friends. He was unjustly arrested. He was mocked and berated. He was unjustly beaten and tortured. His body was subjected to abuse and assault. He was crucified and killed. The comforter in those moments did not receive comfort. The author of life instead received comfort death and in so doing Isaiah 53 4 tells us that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But that's not the whole story. Three days later he was comforted, he was vindicated and three days later, the author of life rose from the dead. And he, when he was raised from the dead, the kingdom of God broke into this world. The kingdom of God's healing and renewal broke into this world and into our broken lives. And one day when he returns, God's kingdom of healing and, re- and renewal will remake this world Entirely. And he will remove all brokenness, all pain, all suffering, all sin, all addiction, all racism, all sexism, all suffering, all sickness. He will entirely renovate and renew this broken world to make it what it should be, to make it what he created it to be. And so you see, my friends, that's why those who mourn are happy. That's why those who mourn are flourishing. That's why those who mourn are blessed because our God is a God who is near to the brokenhearted and mourning. And because our God is a God who will make all things new because our God is a God of comfort. Let's pray. Father, as our eyes look At all the brokenness of this world that surrounds us and as our eyes look within to see the brokenness within us, we pray that you would also lift our eyes up to you to see our comforter and that you would lift our eyes to look forward to the return of Jesus, which is our final and full comfort. We long for that day and we ask that it would come quickly comfort us. In Jesus' name, amen.